Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that, man, that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigns through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, that's a big, big chunk of scripture, and it could feel like just a whole load of words. So we're just going to ask God to open up our eyes. Lord, we need to hear from you this morning. We need this to be your words, your truth, that is filling our hearts. We ask that you bless the words that I'm speaking, that you open our ears and bless them, so that we can take this into our hearts and learn from you. Amen. This is a, a magnificent piece of scripture. And it tells us so much about what Jesus has done for us, and I long for us to grasp it together. Now, I know that you're quite used to having someone talk to you for half an hour, but I feel like we're only really going to get to the substance of this passage if we work together. So as we go along, I'm going to pop some questions out for us to answer together. But we together have the mind of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 2.16. 
So let's all open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Everyone, no Christian gets a free pass this morning. Let's grab onto what the Holy Spirit's saying and share that with each other. Okay? Okay? So Romans 5 starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, what's just happened? Paul has just been talking about the way that Abraham, who, remember, is the key figurehead in God's promises, how Abraham received the benefit of God's promises because of his faith. Not because he was a good boy, not because he donated money to charity or helped little old ladies across the road, not because he sang with a worship band, not because he served teas and coffees at worship gatherings. No, he pleased God because he believed God. He believed believed that when God told him the impossible would happen, it would happen. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith it's impossible to please God. And at the end of Romans chapter 4, last time, we saw how this applies to us. So here's a rough paraphrase of chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Because we believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ, how his death paid the penalty for our sins in full, we get the benefit of these promises. By faith, we receive the promises of salvation, deliverance, hope for a divine future and a peaceful kingdom. So Paul set out our position, and now in chapter 5, he starts to tell us the implications of this position. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Now, if you set about reading the Bible cover to cover, something which I think every Christian should try and do, if humanly possible, you'll see that there can be serious consequences from being at war with God. Back in the Old Testament, God gives his promise of friendship to the Israelites, and while they're trusting him, he drives out their enemies before them, those people who don't trust God. He drives them out, often with violence. That's a consequence of being at enmity with God, of not trusting God. So that's one example. And here's another. During the time David was king of Israel... He listened to Satan instead of God, and he started taking a census. Uh, You can read about this in 1 Chronicles 21. Don't have time to get into the story, but we're not really given the detail of why this was taken to be an offense against God. But it looks to me like David was doing the equivalent of playing top trumps, you know, to see if he could beat all the other boys in the playground. You have a two-wheeled chariot driven by a single horse. Ha! I play a four-wheeled chariot driven by two horses. Take that. The problem is that David wasn't winning his battles because he had the biggest or the strongest army or the best strategy. That's human thinking. He was winning because of his faith in God. And so because he's not trusted God, God exacts a fearful punishment on the Israelites. In verse 14 of 1 Chronicles 21, we read that 70,000 men died from pestilence. That's just a great epidemics that, that God inflicted on them. So that's another example, another consequence of failing to trust God. At the other end of the Bible, in Revelation, 
we see the conflict between God and those who don't trust God. They're destroyed, they're struck down, they're excluded from his presence. Another consequence of failure to trust God. So verse 1 of Romans 5 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't underestimate that peace with God. You know the overemphasis we have these days in our society, in our culture, often even in our churches sometimes. The overemphasis we have on love doesn't do justice to the full character of God. He isn't like some kind of benevolent Father Christmas. He is a God for whom holiness, righteousness, and justice are central characteristics along with his love. So peace with God, that's something to be sought after, something to be treasured. Sharon and I often seem to quote C.S. Lewis to each other from his Narnia series. If you've read them or watched any of the films, I'm sure you'll know Aslan. He's the lion in the book that represents Christ. And what, what do they always say about Aslan? He is not a tame lion. This is not a tame God we serve. He will not bend to our will. We must bend to his. We must submit. We must trust him. We must have faith in him. If only the world would see that this alone is the true path to peace. If we have peace with our maker, with the God of heaven and earth, we have peace indeed. But that's not all we have. Verse 2. Through him, through Christ, we obtain access by by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That blah, 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 that's in the original. <laughs> How on earth am I going to get to, the, uh, to verse 21 of this chapter if verse 2 demands that we stay here a while? Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What does that mean? What do you think it means, the grace in which we stand? What do you think it means? Anyone? This is where you talk What's the grace in which we stand? Okay, you're making me work for it today. You want your money's worth. Okay. So, God's grace, that's the blessings he gives us that we don't deserve. We are able to access them. And here's how it works. Just imagine the most beautiful meadow you've ever seen. And in the middle of this meadow, there's a picnic table with a fantastic feast spread out on it. There's the fanciest sandwiches, the best cakes, all gluten-free, naturally. Wonderful drinks and comfortable benches. And there's a stone wall around this meadow, and the only way in is through a gate. Christ is the gate. His work at the cross makes a way into the sweet meadow, into the grace of God. And this, this is just an analogy, right? Because becoming a Christian doesn't automatically grant you a wonderful life in the here and now. We're going to talk about suffering in a minute, after all. But it does promise you a wonderful life in the hereafter. And we have access to that grace through Christ. Okay, and then after verse 2, there's what feels almost like a crunching gear change. So verses 3 to 5. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, pop! That's burst the bubble of that beautiful meadow scene, hasn't it? We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice! Okay, so the next question, why on earth would we rejoice in our suffering? Is that even possible? Why would, now, I'm just going to pick on someone if you don't give me an answer. Yes, why would we rejoice in our suffering? Because we, we learn that trusting God works. Because we learn that trusting God works. That's what we've learned over 17 years. Fantastic, fantastic. Do you want to finish the sermon? <laughs> <laughs> Any other ideas? Any other ideas? Why do we rejoice in our suffering? It makes us more like Jesus. It makes us more like Jesus. Awesome. Right. Um, so, you know, here in, in this little text, Paul chooses his words carefully. He doesn't say we rejoice because of our sufferings. I was fired today. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Got beaten up by bullies at school. Hallelujah. You know, it's, it's not that. It's not some kind of fake, put-on-a-brave-smile nonsense. It's about remembering all that God has given us, which remains ours, regardless of what we endure. But, but more than that, it's about a supreme trust in God. We know that he allows these trials to happen, and he will use them for his purposes. I don't want to steal anyone's thunder by skipping ahead to Romans 8.28, but it's so relevant here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So you can see Paul's train of thought here. This is one example of all things working together for good. We go from suffering to endurance. The more we suffer, the more we're able to endure. Endurance leads to character. Someone who's endured much, whose patience has been tested and expanded, will likely be a more measured and mature person, and character produces hope. Because with a godly character, with seeing how these trials serve his purpose, we learn to trust him anew, trust that there's a plan, trust that he's good, and that he remains in charge of this universe. So... Before we go on to the next few verses, let me just ask her a, quest, a question. For whom would you die? It's, it's difficult to answer this, truly, unless we've been in the situation. You know, if I were captured along with, uh, say, Nelson Mandela, and the, the captors said, tomorrow we're going to kill one of you, and you decide between you which it should be. Now, what, what would my thought process be? Now, perhaps I think of how much... Mandela's done, the way he exerted his influence to overthrow apartheid, and maybe I'd say to myself, you know what? It's probably better that he survive rather than me. There's so much good he could still do. Or, you know, if it were a choice between me and my wife, Sharon, of course, I'd die in her place. I love her more than any other person in the world. So who would that be for you? Who would you die for? Shout out, anyone. Ben said he died for Chad. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? Your children. Yeah. Cool. 
in that situation of a random stranger, I'd always want the person younger but more future to go. Okay. Lizzie says the one who's younger and has got more of a future. Cool. That's exactly what Father Maximilian Colbert did in Africa. He took the place of a younger man who feared death because the younger man yep. was a lot younger than him. Yeah, taking the place of the younger man who feared death. Okay. Right, now, in chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, this is something different. That's, that's like me being captured by terrorists along with, I don't know, say someone like President Trump. <laughs> if it were me, I'd probably say, mm-mm, ain't no way I'm taking a bullet for him. Or let's say a notorious serial killer, or a war criminal, or worse. I'd look at that person, look at myself, and say, well, compared to that person, I have the greater right to live. Jesus did the opposite of that. He looked at people who were greedy, immoral, lustful, malicious, people like me, and he said, no, I will die in their place. Why would you do that, Jesus? Surely, with your pure life, with all the goods you did, all the people you were healing, all the demons you were casting out, surely it's better for you to stay on earth longer than it is for me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve his sacrifice. He definitely didn't deserve to die. And he did it anyway. That is what Paul says we should boast about. And what a boast it is. You know, Jesus, that fantastic guy, he died for me, he did. Jumped in front of the bus to save me. Knowing how horrible I am, he still did it. He did it at the right time, in the nick of time, you might say. Just when it looked like there was no way for us to survive, Jesus stepped in and did it. So no wonder we rejoice. Instead of the wrath we should be experiencing from God, instead of the righteous anger because of our unclean lives, what do we have? Verse 1 again. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. So that's the first part of Romans 5, the first section. It's Relatively straightforward and easy to understand, I think. Mind-blowing, yes, but straightforward. In the next section, in, uh, starting at verse 12, Paul goes up a gear, and we're going to have to concentrate to follow this. So, are you ready? Morgan's ready. Anyone else? <laughs> Paul says that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And sin leads to death. And everyone sins 
So everyone dies. And Paul, just get ready with the image in just a sec. Um, now this is, this is a difficult, difficult concept, isn't it, to grasp. By one man's sin, by Adam's sin, Paul says, many are made sinners. Because Adam sins, now I'm a sinner. Does that sound logical? Does that seem fair? Quick straw poll. Who thinks it's fair that Adam's sin means that I'm a sinner? Hands off. Great. Is, is it, oh, yeah, one hand. <laughs> one hand. <laughs> um, okay, so I've... My, my wife knows what's coming. Um, <laughs> see, I, I think at first glance, this isn't the easiest thing in the Bible to understand, but it's crucial we understand it because... In this concept, we find our need of a saviour. If Adam hadn't sinned, if Adam hadn't turned the whole human race into sinners, there would be no need for the cross. So what happened? Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were enjoying this beautiful relationship with God. Uh, Genesis tells us that God walked with them in the garden. It was close, it was intimate. And then, having seen God's face, having talked with him as easily as I can talk to you now, Adam and Eve committed an act of sin that violated that relationship. They murdered their relationship with God by breaking the one rule he'd given them. And the offence of that action was so great, it fundamentally changed them. You can read about the consequences in Genesis chapter 3. In short, they fell under a curse and the whole human race fell with them. It was as if they changed into a different species. It's as dramatic as that. They went from having perfect DNA to having DNA that had mutated into something else, something that was no longer pure. So I've got one slide to show you today. Brace yourselves. I was looking for an example that would illustrate this problem of inherited sin, and this is what I got. Can you show the slide, please? So this is a, this is a blobfish. Handsome fella, isn't he? Uh, for the benefit of the recording, you can either search for blobfish on Google Images or something like that, or just listen on, because I'm going to describe it for him. Imagine an extremely overweight, extremely sad, bald man, then imagine his head is melted, as if it was made of wax, and all these features are kind of droopy, and instead of a nose, he's got this odd flap of skin, and he's covered all over in a kind of translucent pinkish goo. This man's head is the blobfish. Bless him. Of, of all God's creatures, he's perhaps the hardest to love. Uh, feel free to take it down now, because it's going to be lunchtime soon. <laughs> now, if a boy blobfish meets a girl blobfish, assuming they survive the traumatic experience of being greeted by such a depressingly miserable expression, <laughs> the, uh, the boy blobfish and the girl blobfish are going to do what blobfishes do, presumably. Which leads me to a question. What are the baby blobfishes going to end up looking like? Will they look like do dolphins or butterflies? No, they're going to look like blobfishes. That's, that's all you get from them. Now, whose fault is it that the baby blobfish looks like the mummy and daddy blobfishes? It's certainly not the baby blobfish's fault, is it? And yet, even though he's made no decision about what he's going to look like, he will still look like a blobfish. Can you see where this is going? Once Adam and Eve fell, 
once they became this new kind of sinful being, they were going to reproduce after their kind. Sinful human beings only produce more sinful human beings. So whether we like it or not, whether or not we think it's fair, it's a fact. We are, by nature, sinful at birth. Now, I hope you're all listening carefully, because the last thing I want you to do is now go and complain to Keith that I said you all act like blobfishes. That's not the message. The message is that born as we are, as sinful people, unless we're saved, we're destined for death. Back in Jesus' day, there were these groups of religious people, and they thought that they could get into God's good books by following the law. So you have this one group called the Pharisees, and they obsessively follow all the laws, including some laws they just totally made up for good measure. And they think that as long as they manage this, they'll be saved. But the law wasn't given until the time of Moses, who came quite a few generations after Adam, and yet Paul says in verse 14 that death reigned from Adam to Moses. In other words, sin was still a thing even when there was no law to break. So sinning is not a matter of breaking rules. Rules can be helpful because at least we can point to defined behaviour and know for sure that it's a sin, but law doesn't create the sin. If all you do is follow the law or set out to be a good person, set out to keep all the rules, you'll have missed the point completely, I'm afraid. Doing things, things God's way, accepting his plan of salvation, isn't a matter of keeping rules. The rules can help us to understand the kinds of things that offend God, but the rules aren't the way. So what is the way? So clearly it's not rule-keeping, and it's not pretending you're not a blobfish when you so obviously are. I'm sorry. Now, reading on, Paul talks about the free gift. The free gift, verse 17, is the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. So what is that abundance of grace? What is that free gift of righteousness? It's something that turns a blobfish into a non-blobfish. When we accept Christ, we say, that's it, God, I am done doing things my way. I'm sorry, I surrender. Then we get the free gift. When Jesus died on the cross, that once-for-all-time act obliterated the impact of sin for everyone who turns to him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 explains it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christians, your new creations... You're no longer blobfish, all melty and slimy and disgusting. <laughs> the acts of repenting, of turning from sin and accepting Jesus, of turning to him, changes your nature. This is as significant as if your DNA had changed instantly. Okay, I know we have some biologists here, and they will have spotted a fairly serious flaw in my analogy. If a boy blobfish and a girl blobfish magically became turkeys, they, wouldn't, they would have baby turkeys, not baby blobfish. So this isn't a perfect analogy. Two Christians will have baby sinners, not baby Christians. When a person is transformed spiritually, 
that transformation is for that person alone. And I'm sorry about that. If you don't like it, you're going to have to take it up with God. That's the way it works. Every single person needs to decide for himself or herself who they will follow. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him will not perish. That's the criterion. And until then, guess what? You're a blobfish. Joke's running a bit thin now, isn't it? If you're still in that place, if you've not turned to Christ, I urge you, make that choice soon, before it's too late, before you become sushi. (laughs) Back to the passage. So in this section, we see the work, the mistake of Adam meant death for every person descended from him. But the work of Christ does so much more than simply reverse that. On the one hand, we have death. On the other hand, verse 17, we have abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. This isn't just life. This is abundant life for this life and especially for the next. So let's pull some ideas here. What do you think that Paul means by this abundance of grace? What does it mean for you? Don't don't all avoid my eye. Right, Dave, pick on you. Go on. Unlimited unlimited resources of God. Great. Any other ideas? Abundant grace. All right. Well, I'll say. Just more than we can imagine. More than we can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Here's some of what it means for me. Firstly, I have purpose. When we talk about basic human needs, we might think about food, shelter, warmth. We might mention company. I would add to that purpose. Show me a man or a woman without purpose, and I will show you the shadow of a person. Purpose gives us a reason to live. What are you living for? Why do you remain alive? See, God gave mankind purpose right from day one. To start with, he told Adam and Eve to subdue and populate the earth. Just a small job then. And now what purpose do we have? To serve God, to spread the good news, to feed the hungry, to clothe the poor. Now, some purposes will be unique to you. Some purposes will be corporate, a shared responsibility. For example, part of my purpose, which I'm fulfilling right now, is to teach the word of God to his people. Your purpose might be to work with children, to create beautiful things, or to to donate your money, your wealth, to godly causes. And then we have joint, corporate purposes. We together are called to give glory to God to worship him, to proclaim his gospel to the city, to the nations. Without purpose, without vision, people perish. That's Proverbs 29, 11. So there's abundant grace in having a purpose. And there's grace too in having a destiny. If you've turned to Christ, your destiny and mine is to be with him forever after this life, enjoying his presence, enjoying the kind of relationship Adam and Eve had before the fall, maybe even better than that. There will be no more death, 
No more crying. No more pain. Revelation 21.4. And there's grace in Romans 28, 8.28, as I mentioned earlier, in knowing that all things work together ultimately for our good. If we love him, if he's called us, we shouldn't underestimate these things. There's just one last thing to mention in relation to this passage, right? So verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now this verse is often used as a so-called proof text for a doctrine known as universalism or universal reconciliation. And this doctrine says that all people will ultimately be saved regardless of any choices they make in life. Everyone gets to go to paradise in the end. So this verse says that sin led to condemnation for all and Jesus' sacrifice led to justification for all. And the word all is used in both cases. I believe it's the same word in the original Greek. And so the universalist says, all people originally were condemned and now because of Christ, all people are going to be saved. They say that all means everyone, everywhere, in both cases. And I would have some sympathy for this viewpoint if it weren't for the massive weight of Scripture that says something quite different. We should always interpret Scripture with Scripture. We can't today go to Paul and ask him to clarify what he meant by this verse. So to understand if he was using the all to mean something less than everyone in either case, we have to go to Scripture. So we look at other places in Scripture that talk about the ultimate destiny of humans who reject God. And that certainly clarifies matters. Matthew 25, 41. Here, Jesus is describing the last judgment at the end of time, and he says this is what God's going to say to the people who rejected him. Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, we've got to be careful in interpreting that because it's metaphorical, it's a parable. It definitely speaks of eternal punishment, at the very least, exclusion from God's presence. In Matthew 13, 41 to 42, again, talking about the end times, Jesus says this, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. John 17, 12, Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He's, preparing, he's praying for his disciples, and he, he mentions Judas. Remember, Judas is about to betray him. He says, while I was with them, meaning his disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the scripture might be, might be fulfilled. So Judas Iscariot was destroyed, was lost. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 to 9, Paul himself writes that Jesus will come, listen, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And there are many other similar scriptures. So, reading scripture plainly with no fancy theological tricks, it looks to me like the Bible's clear. 
Those who aren't saved are never saved. And that, of course, is God's prerogative, and it should spur us on to snatch as many as possible from the jaws of death. So how do we understand Romans 5.18 then? I'd say it's simple, really. Adam's sin resulted in death for all. But remember, we know that not all will die in the sense of being separated from God. So death for all means that this is the state for everyone, assuming they don't take the step of accepting Jesus. And Christ's death brings justification for all, meaning that all people can be justified. This is available to everyone. You know, in this country, right, vaccinations are available for every baby. And for a period, there were some concerns over some of these vaccines, and many parents were choosing for their children not to be vaccinated. The vaccine was available to all, but not all accepted it. In the same way, salvation is truly available for everyone. No exception. All you need to do is turn from your own way, the way of sin, and turn to God's way, the way of Jesus, the way of salvation, the way of eternal life. Without Christ, people could be doomed. With Christ, all people could be saved. So I'll leave you with two questions. First, if you are a Christian, are you living as if everybody could be saved? Have you given up on telling people about Jesus? Giving up on living a godly life? I ask myself this question. By the way, let me assure you, I'm far from a model Christian. So I feel this challenge acutely. Second question. If you're not a Christian, but what I've said today intrigues you, if you feel a stirring in your heart, well, today's your day. A choice lies before you. You know what that choice is, and I dare to say you have no good reason for putting off that choice any longer. So will you choose? Final thing. If you have made a choice, if you're making a conscious decision to change, tell someone. Let's help and encourage each other. And especially if you've decided that today is the day to turn to Christ, please come and talk to me or Keith or to a Christian friend. Let's pray with you. That applies equally to those listening to the podcast. Let's choose God's way, all of us. It's the best decision you will ever make. Don't be a blobfish. God bless you all.